Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. It's my great pleasure to welcome uh, Dr. Omiyasu Wapasu, who's Assistant Professor at the Faculty Arts and Faculty of Education at the University of Prince Edward Island. Um, uh, Wapasu has written about Indigenous feminism and about how Indigenous design thinking can inform architecture in a new, old way. Uh, We are both Canadians, but I, I just found something written on the internet. I reached out to her, said, hey, will you come and speak at the festival? And she said, yes, I love the internet. Don't you love it? Uh, You've worked with the Federation of uh, Sovereign Indigenous Nations, and I'm super excited for your talk today. So I'm going to pass over to you. Christine, thank you so much for thinking that I had something to share with this audience that's so far removed from uh, where I am. And on the internet are people who think divergently and think in an expansive way. And so it's really exciting to be a part of this uh, conference. Okay, so I did prepare a little uh, PowerPoint for you all. So I'm going to start it and hopefully it is entertaining enough and has some ideas in there that probably aren't new to you, but in terms of screen. Okay, so where I sit now in my basement office is in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, Canada. It's within the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq Nation of the Wabanaki Confederacy, places my son and I go and explore um, out and about in this place we're calling home. Um, So it's of the Wabanaki Confederacy in the district of Abegwit, and I'm forever grateful to the Mi'kmaq for their hospitality. Uh, the treaty that governs this area is part of the Peace and Friendship Treaties, the latest of which, which was signed between um, various chiefs, including a chief from Abegwit uh, and the British, to ensure the Mi'kmaq could maintain their livelihood without interference from British subjects. Um, so here is a picture of uh, my son and I at his uh, second ceremony in his life. Um, a Nehio ceremony where, which celebrated, uh, it's called a uh, walking out ceremony <clears throat> and it involves him uh, walking out of a teepee where we had a bunch of other ceremonies um, and walking towards a tree, etc, etc. So that was actually on uh, the land of um, my mom's reserve satellite Cree Nation. Here's, here's a map to show you where that is. Um, and then we're going to travel across this entire map because you can see over there um, the teeny tiny little end of, of Canada to the east. There's a teeny tiny little PE. That's where I am. Saskatchewan is where I grew up. Alberta is where my mom's reserve is. And we're also going to be talking about BC today. So I want to point out that although I am Indigenous, my family is Cree or Nehio from the northeastern region of Alberta. Of course, you're going to notice my skin is so pale. Um, that's because, um, well, you'll see. My family is Cree or Nehio from the northeastern region of Alberta, Treaty 6 territory, and also the reserve called Satellite Cree Nation. Uh, and here are some pictures of, of our family home in Saskatchewan. Um, So my son was born in Saskatoon and we left there in 2018 to come to Prince Edward Island. But we spent some time here um, just enjoying enjoying the land. You can see how much space the sky takes up because when people think of how boring Saskatchewan is, first of all, they don't realize there is summer. And second of all, the beauty really is, is the sky. Like, look at that. Amazing. Okay. So if you must know, 
23andMe uh, tells me that I'm also equal parts Scandinavian, British, and Irish. And you can make of that information whatever you will. Um, but this presentation has several themes, and all of them um, relate deeply to who I am. So the our overarching message is that for the positive and human need for identity, space and place matters. Uh, yes, how that space is designed matters, but more importantly, who designs it and who builds it. Identity matters and therefore identity building spaces matter because they determine how well, how we will live our lives. Um, and again, in my pink office, I think about this all the time. Uh, okay, so. So to get to this point, I'm going to take you on a short journey of who I am and of the research that I did with the Tla'aman people who reside on what is now called British Columbia Sunshine Coast. So again, here in the map, um, we're way over on the on the West Coast. There's uh, the Tla'aman Nation's Crest. They have a different kind of treaty. They have a modern treaty um, that came into place, I think, two years ago. Um, and so my son and I were out there not the most recent summer of COVID, but before that. And here he is looking out uh, the coast. And this is right in front of the community. It's the community beach. And they uh, own that island over there. You can see in the distance called Harwood Island. So right in front of where my son is looking um, is evidence of their ancient aquaculture. Super interesting. So there are fish traps and you can see it when the tide goes out. Um, so as you can see in this map, again, I'm from this like very landlocked place. Uh, my ancestors are from that territory that's really landlocked, but I've been doing research and living on, on two different coasts. So as mentioned above, uh, I am nearly equal parts of other places, but you will notice that I did not identify first as Canadian, but first as Nehu or Cree. Um, uh, so I did not grow up in a teepee. I didn't grow up on a reserve. I didn't grow up on the land. I did not grow up speaking the language of my mother. However, I hold within me, and I think this is why Christine thinks I'm interesting, um, an intellectual tradition that is decidedly not Scandinavian, British, Irish, or even Canadian. When I was young, here's my shameless pug. Uh, my mother, who's Nehio poet Louise Half, wanted to bequeath to myself and my brother the best of what being Nehio had to offer. And so she began with ceremony. So here's where I wanted to draw my picture. And I, uh, you're just going to have to imagine it, okay? Um, so Nehio ceremonies are held within certain spaces and on specific territories. So in Indigenous ethics... I actually can't practice uh, my ceremonies here because this isn't my territory. I'd have to ask for specific permission from Mi'kmaq people in order to do that. Um, so the most, so because I'm displaced, I'm not actually able to practice the ceremonies the way my ancestors practice them, the way my family practices them, and it's kind of a problem. Uh, the most common ceremony that many Indigenous people, including Nehio people, take part in is called the Sweat Lodge Ceremony. Uh, this sweat lodge ceremony, or matutsan, which translates to crying with my relatives, involves a small circular dome. So here I am drawing a picture of the small circular dome. It was once made of hides, now of many tarps, covering a skeleton of willows that form the shape. Inside the lodge, it becomes pitch dark. The people sit on the ground around a dugout pit, and from outside come a certain number of rocks, having been heated to be red hot in the fire. When the door to the lodge closes, the heat is shut in with the people who sweat, throw water on the rocks, 
inhale different kinds of sacred medicines, meditate, sing, and pray. So sweat lodge is not a sauna. Each person and item in the lodge is representative of our relatives. Our relatives. <laughs> Our relatives. <laughs> the red hot rock in the middle represents uh, the center of the earth. The water moves throughout the atmosphere. The empty space in the air is full of breath and water and air. The earth and it represents the earth's atmosphere and beyond into the dark great mystery, the universe. The people sit on, around, and within each of these powerful elements, giving thanks for our very existence, as the earth, the universe, and ourselves are recreated in the ceremony. So with this impression of the operation of the world, the connection and interconnection of all elements and all spirits in one great mystery, I then met up with the other reality of settler colonialism. In my life, this took the form in my early 20s of a gorgeous, tall, blonde, blue-eyed hockey player who grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan, the child of two stoic settler Canadians, at least one of English descent. Not only was he attractive, but he represented to me the ideal. All of the above-mentioned qualities that I was expected to conform to as a young woman in Saskatchewan, marry, procreate, settle down. I was with him partially to understand the people who populated the world I was living in. This, of course, came at a cost as our continuous and never-ending argument was about why I was Indigenous, what made me Cree, why was I different from him, and why did I have any right to be? I didn't live in a teepee, I don't wear moccasins, I don't even speak my language, how was I any less white than he was? So the relationship taught me that built spaces are, first of all, important signifiers to outsiders. Much like uh, early explorers and anthropologists, among their first comments are always uh, the appearance of Indigenous architecture. And then that people in power like to think that what they don't see doesn't exist. And then also that regardless of the colonialism that erased Indigenous architectural traditions from the landscape, Indigenous worldviews, philosophies, lifeways, and expectations around what life is for and what it should be persist. All of these experiences percolated into my academic work. I did want to know how did and how do Indigenous peoples maintain divergent worldviews, life philosophies, and value systems when so much has been taken away? That we no longer live in teepees that were created with representation of how our families are to operate in an egalitarian and matriarchal worldview within them when many of us no longer speak our languages. In short, when the places that made us are no longer made by us, how do we continue to be in us? When the places that made us distinct individuals <clears throat> and that we made into distinct places are no longer reflective of our collective psyche, how do we retain the worldview that built and was built by that environment? How do we retain uniqueness and diversity as community strengths? So in searching out some answers for this question, my supervisor suggested I ask a community that was not my own, a Coast Salish nation, and one that he was interested in working with. So, um, what else do I want to tell you? So Coast Salish, obviously, as I mentioned previously, like living and existing across this vast country, each local Indigenous community um, has a very, very specific culture, material culture, language, dialect, 
and so their worldview is somewhat similar to mine. Like when I speak of indigenous worldview, I am definitely um, glossing over some major differences in each community. Um, but in terms of their specific worldview, I can't even pretend to know what it is because I'm not them. And it is very specific to them. So the Tla'amen are pro-research and full of individuals who are kind and thoughtful um, and overall open to asking questions, important historical questions about themselves, despite their own problematic history with anthropologists. And so here are some more photos of, of the beautiful, incredible place that Tla'amen is. So I don't know if anyone's been to Powell River or Lund, um, but that's their territory. Um, and it's just an incredible beautiful stunning place i think i live in an incredible beautiful stunning place but i don't actually this place just takes the cake it's it's so stunning um so that's at dawn looking for my friend walking his dog so in Amen, uh the indigenous structure uh that reflects the worldview of the people one that i only understand in a cursory manner as i mentioned was the longhouse. In Amen, the control and influence of the Catholic Church in place since approximately the 1880s was so destructive and complete that there continue to be individuals in the community that refuse to believe these ceremonial structures existed on their territory. And there is no photographic evidence that they did. Um, and this particular photo, the closest photo I could find of a longhouse, is actually... Um, Let's see, 573.4 kilometers north. So you see at the bottom Vancouver, um, then Tha'amen by Powell River and Lund, and then way up there is Bella Kula, and it takes 15 hours and 30 minutes to get there by car. So it's not close. Um, there's archaeological evidence, but the photographic evidence that I could find that was closest was there. And yet I managed to find through months of reading through archived oral history created for said anthropologists a story that did capture some of the ideals behind the Tla'amen Longhouse. And again, I can't capture in this presentation or even in my life all of the different worldview that is um, encapsulated in this Longhouse. And furthermore, because the tradition of the Longhouse was erased from this community, um, they don't necessarily have that knowledge within their own community. And I would have had to extrapolate from a nearby community um, and suggest that that is also what they believed, and I didn't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, anyway, so <clears throat> in the late 1960s and early 1970s, several elders related a story about two popular characters, Mink and Wolf. So this is me telling you the story as the elder told the anthropologists in the late 1970s. His name was Ambrose Wilson. There's the Mink now and the Wolf. When Mink was a man, he went to his little boat. He went down to the beach. He was going out to spear sea urchin. And he was going along spearing sea urchin and somebody yelled out to him. Somebody said, Mink, come and pick me up. Mink wouldn't bother. He pretended not to hear. He started singing, wetting my face, pretending to be spearing sea urchin. Wetting my face, pretending to be spearing sea urchin. Wolf said, Mink, come and pick me up. But Pink made no attention. He pretended not to hear. He carried on singing. Wetting my face, pretending to be spearing sea urchin, the wolf called again. Mink, come and pick me up before I shoot you, he said. He went and picked Wolf up. Wolf got on the boat and Mink told him to open up the sea urchins. The wolf started eating sea urchins. Pick the red ones, Mink said. The wolf ate, picking all the red ones. The wolf finished and he got sleepy. You always get sleepy after you've eaten sea urchin. Mink told him, you can lay down in the dugout for a while if you want to sleep. Put your head on the cross piece. 
The wolf listened, and he put his head on the cross piece, and he went to sleep. He was sleeping really good, and Mink was rocking the boat back and forth. I hope you're all not sleeping. The wolf asked him, what are you doing, Mink? Well, I'm sparing sea urchin. It wasn't long, and the wolf went back to sleep. Mink cut his head off, and he went home. He burned the fur off on the open fire. His house had a big opening up on top, so there was the wolf head facing down. A couple of girls came around selling things. Whatever they were selling, Mink told them, lift your heads up. And they looked up to see what's there. The girls that were selling things started to cry. They were crying from what was peeking out from up above. It was the head that had been cut off. Mink got mad and said, why come over here and cry for the strong man? The girls went out. They were trying to find a way to get back at him, how to kill him. One night they called him. All the wolves came and called him to the longhouse. He said, wait, wait, he said. Tell them I am still getting dressed. He was putting on his good clothes. It wasn't long and they came up to him and said, you better hurry up, Mink. He said again, tell them I am still putting on my overcoat. It had been quite a while, then he went. He went inside and told the little next to be close by and ready by the side of the fire. He told the knot hole in the wall to grow bigger when he runs away. He told the octopus to lay across the doorway. He told the mice to chew through all the boats down the beach, put holes in them, paddles, all of them. Mink got inside and all the wolves started growling. Mink started dancing. He was dancing. The wolves jumped on him. And it was like he said, the little next, they jumped into the fire. The fire started hissing. It was so dark inside and he ran toward Knothole. He told the knot on the wall to get bigger and that is where Mink went out. The Knothole made itself bigger. His overcoat got caught in the Knothole and the wolves started poking him with the poker. Mink got through and he ran to his boat and went out and starts rowing. He was rowing away. The wolves were chasing him. They ran out and all piled up at the doorway, slipping all over the octopus at the door. They were slipping all over the octopus. They got through and went down to their boats and put them in the water. They got them in the water, but then they were full of holes. They got one that was a little bit better, but as soon as they used their paddles, they broke right away. The mice had chewed through them. It was a long time and finally they went after him. They got close to Mink and he went into the water. He went in this rock deep down there. His grandmother was there, down on the bottom, sea cucumber. He took the sea cucumber's intestines and put it on Wolf's spear. The wolf said, oh, it's dead, and they left. As soon as he, the wolf goes a little ways, the mink surfaced above the water again and said to the wolf, hey, Kike, what are you guys doing in the gray boat? Here I am, it's still alive, something like that. They went back and tried to spear him again, and they couldn't kill mink. So the story reinforced the idea that for the Tla'aman, built spaces did matter. Despite these decades of erasure of indigenous spaces, for the Tla'aman longhouse-style homes of the past, and in theory, their homes of the 70s, when, these, um, when the story was told, were specifically sites where individuals and families can demonstrate their power. Through this story, the jealous little mink displays Wolf's head, whom he has freshly murdered in his hearth. In response, Wolf's family invites Mink to a dance where they plan on taking revenge. Clever Mink manages to escape their evil plot by enlisting the helps of his relatives, the Little Necks, Knothole, Mice, and Sea Cucumber. Throughout this story, the houses of both Mink and Wolf are their sites of power and protection, where they take the ultimate control over the lives of others. When Mink escapes, he does so based on his knowledge and intimate relationship with his environment, 
the various beings, including a wooden knot hole that he has developed personal relationships with. In the story, it is clear that the built environment and the natural environment had important roles to play in Ha'amin family and political life. The story as it was told in the late 1960s and 1970s suggests that the cultural significance of these places, the house and the environment continued despite these changes of major exterior change, decades of major exterior change. In my story and in the description of my work, I wanted to demonstrate the human meaning of built spaces and how material the values embedded in these spaces become when constructing human cultures. And the stories of mink and wolf spaces and control over them are life and death situations. For the Tlaman social structure prior to 1880, this was indeed true. One's connection to a longhouse reflected their place in society, literally whether they ate or not. And my own story regarding the sweat lodge and my old flame, not only did those experiences in the sweat lodge shape my own worldview, but by not living in a Nehio or Cree teepee demonstrated to that Saskatchewan boy that I was in all ways just like him. Tlaman Indigenous people across Canada faced increasing intervention and domination in our housing by the Canadian government over the course of the 20th century. By 1970 in Tlaman, the Canadian government shipped entire homes, which were repurposed army barracks, to the reserve and expected the people to live in them. In my research, this was the most direct and most contentious intervention in housing by colonial authorities in Tla'amun architecture. Ultimately, the conclusion for the community of Tla'amun, for myself and for our purposes today, the greater control an individual and community has over the construction and design of the places we live, the greater we will reflect our own values reconstruct the values that we want to maintain and devote ourselves to the realization of those values. Thus, my mother emphasized the place-based ceremonies of our ancestors in my life. Tlaman people seek to build new, a new cultural longhouse to teach their young people. Indigenous peoples across Canada, different in so many ways in each nation and locality, must be empowered to the greatest extent possible in their own homes and community buildings. I would posit that this is the exact same situation for people of all backgrounds existing in the UK today and underpins our best shot at surviving as a species, enhancing diversity to maintain locales of strength when major challenges arrive. You are, after all, the inheritors of a culture that attempted to destroy my people in order to develop a society based upon your own values. Perhaps it is time to inherit some new ones from places also not yours. That was my conclusion. Thank you so much. A round of applause and hearts. Yeah, you had the hearts flying. You can't see them when you're presenting, but certainly um, it has been enlightening and wonderful to have your perspective. And like you said, uh, as inheritors of, uh, of a culture that destroyed another, it is time for us to learn from other places and spaces. I'd like to invite the audience to post their, their questions, um, but as you're, you're thinking of them, I wanted to ask about that, uh, that comment you made about how we can um, create, a, create our own, the link between identity and place and space, uh, and this idea of having homes and that interconnectedness. So maybe just expand upon that. How do you create, is it possible to create an identity in a home that has been given to you that is not of your uh, making um, and, and, and how we construct those identities? 
Okay, so um, I mentioned that the when the the government brought out these these army barracks, right? So the entire space was determined by by the government. It was a completely colonial space, and so that was when I noticed throughout the decades that community members were like, "Oh my God, this was horrible." In the decades previous to that, the federal government was providing maybe just building materials, maybe um, they were providing um, a blueprint. And when people had more, like the greater control people have over whatever it is that they're building in their house, that like that in my research, that's what people prefer and what people can, you know, as you're saying, how can we exert more control? So in most, in most indigenous houses that I go in into Canada, the vast majority of us have our own like indigenous artwork. You can't see mine. It's on the other side of the room. Um, and other aspects of our identity um, sprinkled throughout the home. Um, but so that's that's pretty normal. But then not to throw somebody under the bus, but a relative of mine, uh, you go into their home and they have literally nothing. And so it's just uh, these small things. And so that was also part of the research. What kind of small things were Indigenous people able to do over the decades in order to indigenize their own space. And so definitely artwork, I think, is really, really important. Um, material culture, material culture that reflects ceremonies. Um, so a lot of people have ceremonial items throughout their house, like on the West Coast, it's cedar, um, where I'm from, it's sweetgrass. Um, so that kind of thing, I think, is a, a really important way to... <clears throat> have like a, a teeny tiny amount of control over our spaces to reflect and create our identities. Um, and then my parents are really in love with their house that they developed in Saskatchewan because um, they made a straw bale house and it's, it's actually a circle. And so all the windows <clears throat> look out onto that lake you saw the picture of all the windows look out there. And then, so it's one big floor and, and there's open concept. There was a little room my son and I stayed in for the year we were there. Um, and then on top, so it's just two floors. The second floor is their room and it's completely open concept. So it's got my parents' little mini gym in there and uh, both of them have an office and their bed is all one space. And they look out onto the landscape and when they look up, they actually created the roof so that on the outside, it's a silo, like you would see, you know, in, at a farm to keep grain in or whatever. And on the inside, they've, they've made uh, a teepee. So inside is all uh, canvas. And then there are the teepee uh, poles holding the canvas up. So obviously, they had a lot of influence over that design. Um, and they were there while it was being built. And I think... Yeah. So in thinking about, cause I'm, I'm an, I'm a professor. So I think about the spaces that I teach in. One thing I keep trying to press my university for is, um, a Mi'kmaq space. So to create either a semi-permanent or a permanent space that is reflective of Mi'kmaq architecture in order for me to teach in, to me, that would be the best way to teach. Overall, I think the education system needs to be outside for all children, like of all ages. But I think um, in order to indigenize my teaching, it would be best to teach in a space that was decidedly of this place. I don't know if that answers your question, Christine. Uh, I think it did. 
I think it's, I wanted to ask you, we're going through uh, kind of an early process of re-examining public spaces through the protests around the statues. Many of those were statues linked to uh, slavery. But of course, many of these uh, places throughout the world and the places you describe, there's been an erasure of any indigenous architecture, um, which is kind of before you even put statues there. But I I wondered if you might talk a little bit about uh, statues, process, and that kind of um, override in, in public spaces, that, that control and as exhibited in built form in, in public. Um, yeah, so one thing about um, the Indigenous ethic across North America was really semi-permanent, like it's almost like a, a die job, it's like semi-permanent, like when it goes away it's gone, right? Because all of our materials were compostable, like we just watched May's presentation about sustainability and so um, the overall footprint that Indigenous peoples across Canada left on the landscape is is very, very minimal. And so the idea even of statues and monuments is in many ways antithetical to that ethic. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, and so the creation of the monuments and statues is, a, is it, at its most extreme, an example of colonizing that land, right? Like, oh, there was nothing here before. Look what we put now. This is our land. Uh, we're not going to acknowledge or represent or even mention that this was an Indigenous space and is an Indigenous space. So I am. I have been getting in a little bit of trouble um, from people because I really like it when people deface or vandalize or color or paint statues because I really think it represents public interaction, uh, public conversation around that history um, and about the possibilities that we have as nations moving forward. Like, are we going to continue uh, living in a way that erases erases a true history and a whole section of humanity? Or are we going to move forward in a way that reflects all of us? And so by participating in the statues in that way, I think that is saying, yeah, look it, we're still here and we can participate in this together. Um, yes, I'm not sure if that also answers that question, Christine. It does, no, and I, 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 would, um, I would agree with you. What does, uh, de- this is a question from um, Dominique Stendel from uh, a communications consultant. What does decolonized planning in cities or rural areas look or feel like to you so what would uh and by planning i think uh yes urban planning or or a process of planning here when we talk about planning we talk about applying to to build something here but here i think it's in the sense of planning a future place um i guess uh two things um like the other thing that I like to remind people is another Indigenous ethic was what is now called multiculturalism and welcoming people, allowing them to have the worldviews, allowing them to practice their religion, allowing them to be who they want to be. Um, that was something that Indigenous people did. Um, and so if we were to develop a new community, I think you wouldn't want to um, like silence any voices. Um, and I think getting to um, Alex's presentation a few days ago, like the whole democracy of, of the project of in- incorporating as many voices as possible. I think one of, I think one of the most profound things to me is always thinking about habitat for humanity and how meaningful that must be for people to experience that. 
Um, but in terms of planning, uh, definitely, I think Alex had some really good points and uh, even a whole process of how to engage people in, in their space um, and in developing it. And a decolonization is really just to look at every single process we go through and try and understand what are its intellectual underpinnings. So where did this where did this idea of this conference happening on Airme come from? Whose idea was that? Um, how is it structured? Whose idea was that? Uh, and then try and figure out like, okay, well, whose whose ideas should we represent and could be represented? And personally, Christine, I think you did an amazing job of that. I think it's like put Christine in charge of everything. Um, so yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> Uh, please don't put me in charge of everything, uh, but I'm more than happy to run the Festival of Blade. Um, I, there's a there's a question here about from Jack Tonks, who's from Media. Fascinating talk. Thank you so much. I'd love to know how do you think acknowledging the history that you spoke about can impact the future of the built environment in Canada, the UK, or worldwide? How important is us to acknowledge the history, and does that help us? Yeah, I do. I do think uh, acknowledgement is the first step, right? <laughs> because all of this is an erasure. It's just like, ah, you know, you don't exist. You might as well be a, a ghost. Um, <clears throat> so yes, acknowledgement is a first step. And I think um, I haven't studied, you know, the philosophy of change, but I understand that it takes individuals so many steps before they make a change in their action, right? And then one of the first things is just like, oh, there's a problem. And then you kind of go along your life. And the next thing is like whatever step, and then you take so many steps until you actually make change. So absolutely, I think acknowledgement is a first step. And I lost the second part of the question. How, how can it have an impact? Well, first of all, I think it would change um, the perception of the people in the space. So uh, one of the things that I brought up when I was talking uh, publicly about statues was um, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls statue that's in front of the city of Saskatoon police station. So, I mean, Saskatchewan is, I mean, it's pretty arguably where's the most racist part like place in, in, in Canada, but Saskatchewan's up there. And um, the police definitely had like a major, a major role in that. And so having that particular statue of an Indigenous woman in all of her glory in front of their police station, I no doubt believe that that fundamentally will be slowly and bit by bit changing how the officers that are going into that station every day think, behave, and value the lives of Indigenous women. Um, and so in terms of built spaces, that can just be expanded upon. So... Uh, like I mentioned, teaching at the university, I just love to teach in an Indigenous space. Um, we are trying to encourage our university to have um, Indigenous place names. One thing that I'm always on a rant to by myself, like nobody listens to me, I just talk to it about myself, is how annoying is it that when you say I'm from Kingston, nobody knows where you're from because there are Kingstons all over the entire world. What? I'm from London. London where? I'm from Brighton. Brighton where? No clue whatsoever. But if you say I'm from Toronto, I'm from Saskatchewan, I'm from Saskatoon, I'm from Nipawin, I'm from Kamloops, people know where you're from, right? And it specifically signifies that place. And I think that's really, really meaningful. I would love for all of the Brightons, people keep still, they're building a Brighton right here, right now. Very annoying to me. So, yes, I think that's another aspect of built space is like acknowledging where the heck am I? I am not in, in the UK right now. I'm in Canada and this is a Canadian space. These are the Indigenous people that 
kept this place as a placeholder for me and my family to eventually grow up here and prosper. I just went on a rant. I'm sorry, but I love to. I really loved your rant, and I totally agree with you. And somebody's just put in, yeah, Richmond's. Richmond's too. They don't like all the Richmond's as well. So, um, yes. Is there a movement to bring back some of the Indigenous place names in Canada or street names? I think there is, but every time that happens, which is always a really good idea, there's always pushback. And um, the pushback comes from A, people who don't like change, because that's always the case. Also, B, um, that's mostly the case, because then they have all different reasons, right? And so one of the reasons is, oh, well, we are a multicultural country. Why should we do this? And the reason is because, sure, we're multicultural, but Indigenous peoples from Canada don't live in India, don't live in... Um, I mean, they do, but we don't like take over those spaces. We don't go to France and tell them to call like Lyon Nippon or whatever, you know? <clears throat> so um, that would be that point. So yes, multicultural space is great. However, acknowledging the people of that land makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't even know where we were going with that. I'm so sorry, Christine. Uh, there's a question here from Aaron. You're you're right with me, and uh, and don't worry about that at all. There's a, a question from Aaron Filler, who's a student at Cardiff University. Beautiful talk. Thank you so much. Do you have any recommendations of other books or learning materials that we can use to teach ourselves about decolonizing places? Um. That's a really good question because there's like, there's the academic, like super thinky think stuff that I like to do. And then there's the practical applications. So, um, it depends, uh, which one you want to do, or if you want to do both. I think one of the best, uh, academic books out there in terms of talking about, um, indigenous relationship to space is, um, by Keith Basso. It's very popular. It's called, um, wisdom sits in places. And it really describes how indigenous peoples, uh, transcribe the land and the land transcribe them with, uh, our stories and our culture and, and our history. Um, so that is a really good one. Um, in terms of decolonizing space moving forward, hmm. I really like um, work by Mishona Goleman. Mishona Goleman, I think that's how you say her last name, G-O-E-H-M-A-N. Um, and she talks a lot about space and how um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not invisible. <laughs> we, you know, we go through our spaces and we feel like we're just moving through them because we're having relationships in them, right? Um, and so we fail to acknowledge how much the space has an impact on that relationship and how we feel. And so Mishona Goldman really talks about um, just taking apart that relationship. And I was, you know, I was really nervous actually to speak to this group, partly because I come from a history background where this is like a really like revolutionary idea. Whereas I know for a fact that people like urban planners and architects really think deeply about um, how space has an impact on humans. So for us, it was a big deal. For you all, I think it's like, oh yeah, of course. So I can probably put something together if you're interested in terms of um, future reading. But I did do a shameless plug for my mom, but that's poetry, so. <sighs> that's, <laughs> that's totally allowed. If, 
uh, moms are different. I'm going to say, hi, dad. I think he's here somewhere. My mom, my mom and dad as well. So, um, but I, I think the, the question I wanted to ask you, I know you wrote about um, Indigenous architects who are working now and what architects uh, can learn from Indigenous architecture and, I, and these new old ways. I mean, you mentioned this light touch on the land or the fact that everything biodegrades and there's nothing left. Now we're looking to tackle climate change. Um, do you have some, some guidance to share uh, other resources to look at, but also your ideas about what you learned in that process? In working with the Indigenous architects in particular? Um, again, because they're architects, they are like, oh, great. I mean, so glad you're here. Like, you don't have anything to offer this conversation because they're, they're already like five steps ahead. Like I'm looking at the history and they're implementing what we're just talking about. Right. So, um, I feel guilty that I haven't read, uh, their personal written work, but David Fortin works at a university of Manitoba, I believe. And he teaches on indigenous architecture and Patrick Reed Stewart, um, also recently completed his dissertation in his own language at the university of British Columbia. So that was really, really inspiring. And anything he has to say is very inspiring. Um, Douglas Cardinal would be the old school of, of indigenous architecture. And then, um, there is a Pueblo person named, he worked, um, they did a, they did a project together with, um, Ryan Walker at university of Saskatchewan. And it was about indigenous planning. Um, I don't even know what question I was answering this time. I'm sorry, Christine. Um, no, I know so what I learned from them. Right? That they're implementing things, right? But at the end of the day, what they what they have been talking about is not only this this the process that Alex was talking about, but one question I had for Alex was, um, and what the Indigenous architects pointed out is, uh, in Canada at least, there's no feedback. So once uh, once something is designed and created for them, whether or not it was by them or with them is another question. But do people, do the public have an opportunity to say, yes, we like this space. This was what we wanted. Um, and, and we're happy with this. These materials are good quality. So that's the other follow-up question is, um, are the people there satisfied with what, with what resulted from that experience? And having um, the power to do that, I think, is really important also in terms of ownership and stewardship of that property or development moving forward. I know you work on curriculum and on education and decolonizing the curriculum is a big thing that's just beginning here. I mean, my kids are often quite shockingly still taught that when they showed up in North America, there was nothing there. Um, or even that before the Romans came to Britain, there was nothing here or some tribes that didn't have much in terms of their housing. So it's still, it, there's still a long way to go. Do you, um, do you have, I guess, I don't know, in terms of how to start decolonizing a, a, a curriculum and, and what it looks like once you've done that? Um, so again, sadly, Christine, like the students that I'm teaching range in age from, um, I don't know, 18, 17 to 50 something or 60 something even. Um, and these very, very young people also aren't learning about about Mi'kmaq history or even Canadian history that involves it, which is just mind blowing because I make the master students read um, about read by um, uh, what is her name? Emma LaRock. And she was writing in the seventies about how to do this in the seventies. 
<laughs> so, and the Canadian government, with their white paper in 1969, was talking about uh, education of culture in Canadian schools. Well, if they actually meant that, then we wouldn't be where we are today, right? Because this is like 50 years later. So clearly they didn't mean it. Um, but Emma LaRock's writing, I think, one of the most important things um, that came out of that for me and that I think in, in decolonizing is to have people with lived experience presenting the information and as to great an extent possible, because not only is that, okay, lived experience, you have that knowledge, but it's also, um, a democratizing, I guess, of education, like valuing, for example, um, the children in your school for the knowledge that they have and valuing this indigenous person as a human being who has a lived experience. So it lets go of the power of, of that educational system that seems very top down. And in many ways, like I like to think of it as like, ideally, like positive indoctrination, but a lot of the time we know that it, it's not. So it's letting go of the reins of those powers so that the people with a lived experience are able to share that information. I think that's like, to me, that's the gold standard of, of uh, decolonizing education. That sounds, that sounds entirely linked to, to creating the built environment is to mm -hmm. actually um, to, to, to listen to the people with lived experience who live in a place and, and, mm -hmm. and bringing that into the creation of, of these, um, of their homes, uh, be involving them in the creation of the, the community being really, really critical. I mean, the, a lot of the people who are here with us I and mean, they're involved in, in taking places that exist and putting more homes on it. And, it, you know, what is that early, that first process? What does that look like when you, when you um, respect the place and the knowledge of that place? Uh, how do you approach that respectfully um, with the, with the idea that you are going to actually build on it you're going to actually change it in some way so you're already involved in a in a process that is that is colonial yeah yeah so i mean i was also nervous to speak to the audience because the cultural differences i don't even know i actually have never visited the uk at all which is a, a really big bummer as far as i'm concerned but um <clears throat> i think there's a lot of history in that place. And, and you already mentioned before the Romans came, there were people there. So there's been a lot of histories that are erased already in that space. So personally, I would be really interested to learn all about those things, all of those stories from the beginning to the end, including all of the people who may be being dispossessed. Um, it says lost connection, but I think their stories are also important. So for example, here in Prince Edward Island, um, there is a history of um, of black people living here, ideally to become free, but we know that they probably weren't all that free when they came to Canada. And so they had a specific location in downtown Charlottetown where the legislature now sits. And there's no acknowledgement of their existence on that land, of their experiences of living in Prince Edward Island. So when I moved here, I knew that there had to be something, but I didn't know what it was in terms of the black history of this place. So um, that is a really important, interesting piece of, of history I would like to see there. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm.
This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer. Produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.